0: Welcome
1: to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent, and this is a new podcast for the Sex, Sex Work, and Sexualities channel of the New Book Network. And today I have Heather Berg here to talk about her awesome book, Work. Heather, tell us about you. Hi, Rachel. Thank
0: you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here Um Well, I am assistant professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, And as you say, yeah, the author of Pornwork. So I'm excited to get to it.
1: So tell us, tell us about the book. Why the book? Why now?
0: (laughs) Well, um, why the book? It started um, in a different spirit than it ended. And I think that's, that's how all, especially ethnographic research should be. Um, But I started writing thinking that what I wanted to do was tell the story of porn as a job. Um, I think that had been underexplored with, you know, preference for a focus on representation, on what porn means for consumers, for non-sex working feminists, um, for the public, for everyone but the people who make it. Um, And I wanted to correct that. And so it started in that spirit um, and much of the book, um, follows along those lines, but it also took new departures as workers pushed back against some of those premises. Um, and so, one of the main tensions in the book is around the reality that porn is a job, but it's also something that lets workers refuse much of what they associate with straight or non-sex work.
1: Yeah, and it's it's funny because I there's a sort of zeitgeist at the moment that I'm picking up when I'm speaking to people that. We've been talking about sex work for a long time, but actually we haven't talked about the work aspect of sex work. We've talked about everything else. We've talked about, you know, performance and, you know, sort of gender and stuff like that. But we haven't actually talked about work. So this seems to be a really timely book because it seems to be picking up on the zeitgeist of what's going on, at least within the academia. So I just wanted to put that out there.
0: I'm glad to hear it. It took a while to write it, so I'm glad it still feels current. <laughs>
1: right. I have to say, like, you featured quite strongly in my PhD, and I spent the weekend kind of fitting little bits more into into my like last-minute PhD. So I ha- when, and when I was doing this, I came across this awesome phrase, porn workers are often crafter than those in straight jobs. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean...
0: A couple of things. Um, I mean, on the one hand that I think porn workers and at least the porn workers that I engaged for this project and that I've read um, and been in community with in in the years since um, have just an incredibly sharp analysis of how work under capitalism operates um, and in ways that I think um, are much sharper than your average straight worker. So, you know, I'll talk to friends who are dealing with just mundane workplace abuses outside of sex work. um, And it might take years uh, to come to the position that like, your boss's job is to take as much from you as they possibly can for as little in return. And people have all sorts of guilt about that and all sorts of, of kind of um, baggage around what they, what kind of worker they think they should be and what that should mean. Um, and if they get treated badly, think it's their fault. You know, I think that's really common. And I just don't find that in the same way in sex working communities. Um, and that's a generalization. It's not always true. But in general, I really found that um, that porn workers have this sense that, like, of course, the boss's job is to to extract from you. And so, of course, your job is to fight back in all the ways that you can. And that comes to the second part of, of my answer to your question around the craftiness, which is that I think that having that analysis prepares porn workers um, to find little cracks, little interventions, um, hacks, workarounds, um, with just a lot more clarity of vision and and yeah, craftiness um, than you see in some straight working communities where often the you know and of course straight workers are always committing small acts of sabotage too but i think often the the first um response is to think like isn't that illegal like can the state protect me or uh, or um you know going to hr something like that and uh, of course that's not everyone but but i do find that foreign workers um have a tendency to, to think beyond that almost as a first order of business
1: yeah i think i think sometimes with the sex industry because there's no pretense is that it's Drip down to the hustle it's not the hustle is not described but disguised by the building you're in it took me I it took you know within the university context it took me a while to realize that the hustle was there I just didn't notice it because of the corridors
0: exactly (laughs) yes absolutely yeah and I think that's so you've put that so beautifully that um that yeah it's just it's all stripped bare it's all revealed um you know and and performers know like these are my fans <laughs> They know exactly how much and how little say uh, a studio director is bringing to the table um and in ways that I think yeah can get uh kind of covered up in, in say an academic context yeah, yeah yeah
1: exactly exactly so your book discusses porn performers having engaged in collective action for decades can you talk us through that what does that look like mm-hmm.
0: I mean so in, in terms of that those kind of more formal interventions um, that looks like a long history of unionizing efforts um, that have you know routinely been met with pretty extreme uh, managerial um, um, you know pushback whether that be blacklisting of performers who organize um, various attempts to you know to derail these efforts but yet you know performers keep, coming back to, to these, um, strategies. And so in, you know, in the 1980s, that looked like the pink Ladies social club where a number of feminist performers got together. And at first, you know, we're simply trying to share information, but also to, to get folks to agree not to work under rate, to think about some, you know, just basic questions and how to, how to organize around wages and solidarity. They were also thinking about health practices um, you know, in later years there have been really exciting efforts around, again, um, you know, community self-protection, around health, um, around wages. Um, now workers are organizing against the parties who are in some ways their most powerful bosses, which are platforms rather than individuals, um, and thinking about um, shadow banning practices, how to fight back against, Um, you know, various forms of internet surveillance, um, and also to to think collectively about, uh, you know, how to build power. So in the contemporary context, I'm really excited about the work that the BIPOC collective is doing, um, you know, around these issues and also around sharing information, building power, helping performers to self-produce when that's what makes most sense for them.
1: Yeah, and that's that's really funny because when I was interviewing webcam performers, and they they were talking about um, the use of the stream, like so, when I interviewed them, what was happening is that the um, the webcam hosting sites were starting to take clips of the of the stream of the webcam host of the webcam performers and using them to produce little porn clips. You know, because they, they're kind of like capturing that new market for for clips. And so women were kind of um, sort of uh, protecting themselves in this kind of sabotage type way, which still meant that they made money, but they would like to they turn the music up in the background.
0: Oh, that's great. Because,
1: you know, the webcams, hosting sites won't take on yeah. the music industry.
0: Oh. oh, I love that strategy. That's brilliant.
1: And oddly enough, it was like it was the most niche stuff that that was getting done to. It was not the vanilla stuff; it was the really kind of out there kind of BDSM stuff that they were they were recording because they were using the the, the sort of little, little clips, which kind of brings me on to your to the next point. I wanted to talk to you about. Can you tell us how the book discusses the, the direct to the consumer scenes and how they've really impacted the industry? It, Absolutely. It,
0: Yeah. I mean, so the, the first connection to what you're talking about, um, is the reality that old school, you know, traditional producers, directors, agents, um, who are predominantly white men, um, have had just really concrete and, um, and kind of calcified old fashioned ideas about what sells, who's marketable, what bodies and sexualities, um, and, you know, if we even just forms of content are marketable. And so many managers told me, you know, I'm not racist, but it's just that there's no market for this this niche. You know, that's always the, the excuse. Um, and then at the same time, the kind of content that has um, been just booming, um, that has taken a huge portion of market share for digital content, um, but also just in terms of, you know, which... Performers are are making their way. There are still intensive hierarchies and in platform based work, um, but but performers find that there's such a, a more varied market um, for really whatever you have on offer than traditional managers um, could ever even imagine. And so I think I think that also speaks to what you're talking about, where like now hosts uh, are are you know trying to steal webcam models performances and market them as porn scenes but even that that's management scrambling in this really kind of derivative and reactive way to strategies that sex workers have already developed it's not like management coming up with anything interesting on its own um and i think that that's that's just the case over and over again
1: yeah and I, I and i think that's really like that's really important because would, the best women that I talked to that mentioned that they were kind of like, they weren't at all heteronormatively, you know, you know, like they weren't the masturbatory, like articles of like these middle-class white men that run the porn industry, but they've created these real niches and that kind of parasitic thing that the porn industry does. But I like the idea as well, that there's a kind of cross-contamination going on now. And this is why I mentioned you in my PhD is like, like so sort of webcoming is a satellite of porn, but now it's almost the other way around. As well. Yes,
0: absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I think the second part of the answer to your question um about direct-to-consumer content. So in, in on the one hand, it has opened up the sphere of, you know, who gets to be a performer in the first place, um, who can make a living off this work, um, but it's also, you know, uh, disrupted, if you will, their relationship um, of, of mainstream performers who had been working in studio porn to their t- known traditional managers. Um, on the one hand, less and less studio porn is being produced, which is a problem, mm-hmm. of course, for people who relied on that income stream. But on the other, um, there are some folks who have managed to not only wrest autonomy from doing scenes that they produce on their own terms and that they own the copyright for, um, but also to just make more cash um, than they ever had uh, from doing traditional scenes. So it's really this, this um, fascinating moment. And, and I, you know, we're not, it's not quite clear where, where things will land, but there are some, some parties, you know, such as OnlyFans um, such as, you know, Man Man or Mind Geek, um, who, you know, are developing just huge amounts of power. Um, and at the same time, individual performers have more power vis-a-vis directors, for example, than they ever have.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think you, this kind of taps into this next point that I really liked that you, you mentioned. Your book might discusses porn workers engaging in, in struggle rather than resistance. Can you break that down for us? Because I, because I liked it. I like the idea that there's resistance. Sounds passive. Yes, exactly. That struggle sounds really kind of proactive.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you that that landed and that you're pulling that out because that's really important to me. Um, and yeah, I think you know, on the one hand, part of my move away from the language of resistance is just that it's been so co-opted, you know, especially by, you know, liberal feminism during the Trump years. I mean, so part of it is just fatigue with the term and the ways that it's been watered down. Um, but yeah, I also think that, that both resistance and resilience assume a top-down process, whereby working people on the bottom uh, resist forms of oppression and control that are craftily, you know, devised by, as if, as if management like knows more than workers, uh, has more foresight and is strategic in different and better ways. Um, and that's just not the case in this industry. And I would venture in most, and this is where, you know, my Marxism is an autonomous Marxism. So I'm really, I'm most interested in, in, in forms of struggle from the ground up. Um, and I think that that's true across industries, but I think it's particularly true in the porn industry where you can just see, um, if you're paying attention, um, managers flailing all the time. And, and again, I think the, the webcam example that you offered us is a perfect one, like that they are, are trying to catch up with the innovations that sex workers have already figured out. Sometimes they do so successfully because they have more resources and they're not as targeted by the law. And there are all sorts of structural things that make that possible. Um, but in terms of the ingenuity itself, that's on workers. Um, you know, there's this old labor studies um, saying the the manager's brain is under the workman's cap. <laughs> I think we can see, you know, all the ways that, that that manifests in this context, too. So I think that struggle really, you know, what I'm trying to do with that is highlight that dynamic, um, but also to really highlight the reality that we're not talking about resistance in an apolitical way or in a way that that doesn't presuppose that there is actual class conflict happening here and that any of the forms of resistance pushback hacking whatever you know are a matter of of class struggle um that they are a matter of of composing ourselves as as a class of workers um yeah again rather than just reacting to to management in this kind of um um iterative way
1: yeah and i think it's really important because it kind of expands the debate as well doesn't it like sort of you know the in, into a wider debate around struggle around work i mean why wouldn't you do porn because it's quick and it doesn't take out that much time it allows you other time to do other stuff you know so that's a struggle in itself isn't it is the fact that you've opted for a form of sex work so that you you co-opt more of your time back so the struggle starts before you even you know start sex you know start porn and then once you get there the struggle continues yes yeah, you know? that's, yeah. and I love that I love that concept I love that concept of because it also as well when you start to talk about um porn as a, as a as a site of work struggle yeah automatically start to shift that that narrative away from victim you know you've, you've been cast into the onto this porn set totally against your will and now you've got to resist hell no <laughs> and, I, and I really like that because it, it kind of like expands that that thought um this your book talks about porn in terms of anti-work can you tell us how the book does that
0: yeah no I mean and then this um but I'm sure by your design, this flows so well from your last question. So yeah, so we were talking about, you know, struggle in the workplace, but also um, porn work itself can be a way of doing struggle against uh, the wage relationship. Um, and that's not to say that it's cleanly outside of it, but it is a way to resist some of its harms, some of its tediums, um, some of its forms of exploitation. Um, and that, and I mean that not just in a, an abstract sense, but in a really basic one, which is just to say that many people do porn as a way to get out of doing other jobs. Um, and and, you know, I think it can it's really crucial to remember, um, sometimes this, I think in in scholarship from self-identified allies, there can be this tendency to tell sex worker stories um, in ways that assume that the hierarchy, you know, the class hierarchies within sex work, are, um, are calcified and obvious. And that you know, there are some people who have privilege as such, uh, and that's certainly true, but, um, but this idea then becomes that there are people at the bottom of the hierarchy who have no ability to intervene in their conditions, who are, you know, just working to survive in the most kind of basic way. Um, I've been, you know, re- I'm really inspired by, um, by um, Moses, formerly known as Femi Babylon's writing on this um, on the problem with the the, the, di- the language of survival sex. You know, this idea that there are some people who are just—it's similar to the language of resistance, right? Like there's something reactive about it. Um, when even folks who have very limited economic options are still refusing something, right? They're still struggling against something, whether that be low-paid fast food work or a shitty foster placement or an abusive family um, or historically domestic work, right? Like there are all sorts of, and this is particularly true for racialized workers. Um, So there's still a refusal at work. And I think we have to absolutely pay attention to that um, to avoid this kind of sense that, that sex workers need protection because it's a last resort. I think that that, that leads us to really empty politics.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah. and yeah, totally. But also as well, it's very static. It's very, it's very punctual. It's like the whole Rocky implies that you don't move from like, you know, that it doesn't get the horizontal nature of sex work. So when I was interviewing uh, webcam performers, I, um, you know, and from my own experience, like, you know, I would be doing several things at once and they were doing the same. So they'd be webcaming and they'd be making clips and they'd be doing telephone sex and they'd be doing a whole loads of other things. And if they met someone on cam who was particularly, you know they they felt like you know they could hook up with they'd hook up with them so it's not it's not a strata going up no. it's a cross absolutely
0: and also this idea that that people who are doing survival work never have the capacity to intervene in their conditions i mean just seems so condescending to me um and and part of their interventions of course are exactly what you're talking about it's about hustling in different industries it's about diversifying Income sources in such a way that you can, you know, tell one bad boss or particularly abusive platform to fuck off. You know, like that. Like people do that all the time, even when they have immediate bills to pay.
1: Yeah, and and also as well, it's like at what point does work not be survival anyway? I mean, we're we all living in a. Are we all living in a condition where we don't have to work to pay the rent, and rent magically it pays itself? So are we not all survival? Are we not all? Involved in survival labor. Um, what was it? I read. Oh yeah. Um, this is quite complicated, but I'll read it out. Like, it's complicated because I barely read my hand, own handwriting. If I'm right. I, re- I really love the phrase that porn dialect- dialectics are messier than conventional stories of class struggle because class boundaries are less ca- uh, less calcified here. I liked that. I like that because I think we were just touching on that. But do you want to expand on that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, to the extent that the, the, you know, the forms of struggle I'm talking about, you know, that's a gesture, of course, to, to Marxist dialectics, to the idea that that history is produced through through class struggle, you know, between workers and the people who exploit them, their managers. Um and that's true, you know. I, even as porn uh, and sex work make a make a mess of class, uh, I am still a Marxist. I still think class struggle matters. Um, and yet, I think that there are all of these really um, crucial ways that porn workers' class struggles um, disturb those original categories and and really beckon to Marxists to to think in more complicated ways, not. Less militant ones, and I want to be really clear about that. That my my intervention is not to say, um, well, everyone's a manager sometimes, so there's no struggle. But that that part of what is so deeply abusive about the capitalist wage relation is that your best bet for getting out of a, a boss's I mean, under getting away from a boss's abuse is to become a boss. I mean that that is that is. Um, That's how the wage works. Um, And there's some promise that independent gig work would get us out of those dynamics, but it is super complicated. And I think that we can see even on on direct-to-consumer sites such as OnlyFans, um, all sorts of of um, non-horizontal dynamics around trade relationships, who's making more money off scenes, how those are brokered, who gets protected and by what means. Um, So all that's to say um, that I think porn, you know, disrupts this idea that there are discrete categories between workers and managers, um, because most performers have been managers at some time or want to be. And so there you have, you know, a working class community, but um, composed of people who are doing everything they can to rid themselves of worker status. And that's, of course, a matter of class struggle, too, but it's one that doesn't fit neatly within um, left labor studies and labor activism's, you know, dominant ethical and political categories. And so we have to think in new ways about what to do with that.
1: Yeah. And I think as well, it speaks to the absence of the porn uh, sort of performer's voice as well, because what we lose is then a whole kind of discussion about how your mate got you the job yeah you know because quite often like my experience I mean I'm in this really bizarre position that I make a lot of money from this this retro porn I made like 20 odd years ago like these little clips and my friend had this idea of making them more retro so we look like we're in the 70s and the 90s and I you know I make more money from that than I ever did doing anything else and I have not that got recorded forever ago And it was a friend that suggested that it was technically, I suppose, technically I was working for her at that time, but it wasn't really like that. And I think what we do, what we lose is that kind of like that kind of networking and rhizomic kind of conversation that also makes that power dynamic really negotiated, sometimes more abusive. But often, you know, often you know more negotiated. Yeah,
0: and sometimes so, both at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I, yeah. I was thinking about um the conversation. I had this quite well known porn actress called uh, Tasha Rain. She and she was really interesting about you know call, you know sort of calling out some sort of bad work practices, but also about the control of her image, about control of, like, the, the, the wording that's used to describe her. It's just like, don't you dare call me a MILF. I'm still in my 20s. I'm saving that to my 40s. You know, she was really interesting. And, you know, and I think we lose that, don't we? It's almost like because we're still, we're still kind of like, one of the hangovers of the, of the porn war debate was this kind of catfight debate that didn't have any nuance so you know we're cast into the idea of like these exploitative relationships among people who don't know each other and actually that's not always the case
0: no rarely yeah and yeah. I mean, of course, you know another legacy of the porn wars was that that um, you know and there are certainly some exceptions on the on the nominally sex positive side of things but that that for the most part you know the conversation wasn't about working people it was about images and so it was it was people, arguing from the perspective of consumers
1: yeah 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 exactly exactly look um i interviewed lorna bracewell a few months ago or a few weeks ago who wrote really interesting about the how we lost the pool was it was quite interesting you know the sort of point point that you took um so your book positions itself as being against rarefication what do you mean by this
0: yeah i mean another great segue i mean so this is this is exactly what I'm talking about is this, um, this, this move, uh, to decenter the conversation, um, which has been s- for decades focused on, on porn, you know, as, um, Helen Hester says, you know, like we have to get after the image, right? So, um, and, and in, in some way, or, or that the focus has been after the image, um, not on, on what it takes to, to produce the thing. So, so this, the, my you know, move against reification is just to remind the reader, and especially um, again, you know, nominally sympathetic and allied um, academic readers, um, that you know that porn is, and I'm going to quote Nina Hartley, who's who's featured in the book, but that porn feels different than it looks. Right. Um, that what you see on screen doesn't reflect working conditions. Um, and that, that is true in both the capacity that, that porn that looks particularly abusive may not be, um, but also that porn that looks ethical that is marketed as such may not be. Um, and, okay. um, and I think so both things are really crucial. And so it's, again, an invitation to, to think from the perspective of working people um, rather than people pr- who consume or, or hire out their labor.
1: And I think this is a really important debate that we need to have as academic studying sex workers, that we've got to look past the advertising that may be really subliminal. We cannot use act, uh, sort of advertising as, as primary data. Mm-hmm. right? We, you know The sex work research have just had a major blast because we were talking about somebody using adult work profiles as a data source you can't do that and it's the same way you can't take on face value what you see within the port within a porn you know sort of porn production without talking to the people involved
0: yeah i mean and I, and I, I think another line of inquiry that i think to me seems much more vibrant in in perhaps the circles that you're running in the uk context is a conversation about just class and academia um, and that and the sort of um, a built-in impossibility, of course, that some people buck, but of of working class academic life, and I think that has a lot to do with then the frameworks that come to dominate it. Like if you come to any kind of inquiry where your primary engagement with service work has been as a consumer, then of course you'll read an ad and think that that's yeah. reality. But um, you know, if your primary lens is as you know as a working person then things are going to look different and I I think it's it's obviously it's the kind of methodological misstep that you're identifying but it to me it also just says a lot about the class politics of the academy
1: yeah I think so too and I think as well is that like sometimes it just strikes me as a sort of like there just seems to be an outrageous amount of naivety around sex research academics like i've heard academics talk about um sex work not being gendered because of the amount of men that are advertising it's like sex workers it's almost like don't you do know this this is a fantasy for lots of customers like paid for and it's like it's, it's it's that type of thing that actually really does harm yes absolutely
0: it does real harm and i think also you know academia is kind of um, fetish for new lines of inquiry, right? So then there would be this need to focus on like, yes, did you know how many straight men are? It's like, they're not, that's not happening. But also um, there's this sense that you're breaking open new territory, yeah. um, which I think, I think, yeah, I'm fascinated by how many, um, yeah, how many sex worker thinkers are, are speaking even again to self-identified allied academics. I'm just saying,
1: nope. (laughs) Um, They don't like it. We we do it all the time. They do not like it. No, yeah. I'm getting this impression, and I don't don't know if it sounds familiar to you, but, you know, it's like a lot of of sex work academics can only access sex workers through gatekeepers. So they can never get to the middle of the pond. They're always paddling around the shallow part. So they have to kind of walk around the shallow edge of the pond to find something significant because actually research academic research has alienated itself so much from the people that they to study that they won't talk to them and i've seen yeah. that in forums where where it's sort of like sex workers have absolutely torn apart people's work because it's so it's so damaging to them sure you know? yeah.
0: And- yeah and i mean you yeah. know
1: i don't i don't pretend to
0: be cleanly outside of that i you know i have a lot of ambivalence about um about what it means to yeah, to <laughs> make my living writing about this, regardless of the kinds of work that I've done in the past that like right now, you know, my primary identity as an academic and um, and I think we should maintain a lot of ambivalence, you know, not guilt, which is not helpful, but around like what it means to, to write about sex workers' um, stories, particularly when sex workers are you know, there's so many sex worker authors who write beautifully and prolifically. And like, and some sometimes I feel like, what are we, <laughs> what are we doing? Um, the, 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 the kind of utility of this intervention is is limited. And I think it can be extractive. So I try to minimize that in the ways I can, but but I, I don't pretend to be outside of it.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, it's difficult. So you discuss in the book, porn workers uh, oh, are careful, careful to mark the difference between desire and consent. Mm-hmm. tell us about that I liked that
0: yeah I mean I think um, this is this is um, me pushing back against a kind of liberal discourse of enthusiastic consent that's become popular in sex positive circles um, and that I think is just in, explicitly if, if not it's certainly implicitly whorephobic this idea that the only good kind of sex um, is sex that is desired for its own sake, on its own terms, um, and and that sex can never be something um, that we that we make use of um, in order to get yeah. other needs met. And so, yeah, porn workers and sex workers in general are are really good um, in their own terms um, of of figuring out the desire versus consent. Um, that, that there's some distance between those things. Um, and, and I also love um, Charlotte Shane's piece, Getting Away With Hating It, which talks about um, you know, how like, money is pleasure. And so getting money for sex can be a great thing <laughs> to get from sex, which makes the sex desired, right? But not in the ways that liberal um, ideas of enthusiastic consent would, um, would make space for. And plenty of people featured in the, in the book say something along those lines, like, yeah, I wanted the sex because I wanted what it would give me.
1: Um,
0: And that's, that's a perfectly fine, non injurious thing uh, to get to get from a sexual encounter. And it's also something that, you know, I think in in a continued landscape in which, um, you know, whether folks self identify as straight, but, you know, self identified women who have what looks like straight sex often get so little from it, um, I think a paycheck is a, a great <laughs>
1: takeaway. <laughs> Depends on your fucking babe. Um <laughs> But I like that as well, because even in that, there is such a class discussion to be have, having, isn't it? That, you know, this whole potential of area of potential kind of uh, commerce, you, you know, is shut off if it's not, you know, if, if everyone's not coming all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it's so classist to imagine, to you know, to think about a hierarchy of what counts as okay sex that's based in the idea that all of your needs would be independent from the kinds of relationships you have. I mean, for who is that imaginable um, exactly. it, it, that is such a, a rarefied position to be in? And again, it's one that's not even, you know, particularly pleasurable by the numbers even for those people who can claim access to it so it's both (laughs) classist and i think ignores so many of the problems of heterosexuality
1: But also as well it kind of speaks to what happens with porn and sex work and um and i think it's a point that um oh uh, smith and juno make really well in revolted prostitutes when they say um that 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 sex work and, and porn represent so much more than they actually are for other people who don't involve in them, you know? So they, they get taken over as a sort of like, a, almost like a sort of poster child, you know? And it's, yeah. So the book discusses authenticity. Can you tell us how it explores that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, I'm interested in, the ways that, that under late capitalism for, for all sorts of workers, authenticity is is um, a spoken or unspoken job requirement that that we're not allowed to do work because we have bills to pay. Um, at least there has to be this performance of of doing the job because you love it. Um, and this has has wormed its way even into the most implausible context. You know, you can't get an interview to be a barista without bullshitting about how much you care about sourcing coffee beans. Um, and, and, you know, the joys of customer service. Um, and I think, so that's just become ubiquitous. I think it's even more intense in the porn work context because of exactly this loadedness around enthusiastic consent. I think as a response to anti-porn feminist claims about, um, the, the total uh, lack of ethics of foreign production and consumption, um, there's been this reaction on the part of some consumers where um, a, you know the response to just a great deal of internalized shame around consuming sexual products and services has created a group of consumers who try to allay their ethical concerns by demanding more work of sex workers Whether that be social media performances that give um, fans a sense of who you really are, um, that uh, you know, on film performances that convey deep interest in the scene itself, and I'm fascinated by by fan discussion boards, you know, where fans um, try to ascertain who's who's having a real orgasm. I mean, there's so much um, there's so much wrapped up in that, and I do think that at least part of that. Is about fans trying to allay some of their concerns about simply paying sex workers to work. Um, you then have producers and directors who are responding to this free-floating anxiety by um, by imagining themselves and marketing their products as ethical because they are authentic, um, and that that looks like a lot of feminist and queer quote ethical porn. Um, but it also looks like in mainstream porn and um, smaller, low-budget productions, um, this idea on the part of of directors that it's wrong to hire people who need money, um, which of course, since we're all doing this work because there are bills to pay, just means you know more work in in pretending that the money isn't important. Um, and then, but the other thing that I want to say about all while all of those things are true. Um, authenticity does matter to workers sometimes. Um, and so much of what is deeply painful about, again, about just, you know, laboring under the wage is alienation is a sense of, of tedium of pleasurelessness. Um, and so some workers struggle against that by finding forms of work that, that feel more at home to them that feel like they do express the self in, um, in a, a realer way. And I want to take that seriously at the same time as I, I critique uh, management and consumers who demand that kind of performance of workers.
1: Yeah. And I think again, like, and I feel like I've spent all day, like just slating academia, but I'm going <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to, but- but this idea of authenticity is really interesting because in a way it's kind of like the, the, the constant like debates that we have around exploitation, around trafficking and all the other things, it kind of puts a pressure to look like you're having the best time ever in order to distance yourself from this kind of assumes like, you know, sort of victimisation. But at the same time, there's also a misinterpretation of like, say, what really is authentic and what really is capitalism invading new markets so we get this discussion about bbw's uh big beautiful women the big black women whatever um all the time and it's cast as a kind of authenticity yeah when actually my perception and having spoken to to uh, you know like webcam performers is that actually it's it's more like a case of capitalism invading areas of the market that under the old form of, like, studios, they didn't get to exploit. Studios weren't were employing big women or big women of colour or women of colour generally, whereas in the new reinvented world, everyone can be profited from, but not necessarily equally. No. I mean, so, yeah, go ahead. I, I spoke to a couple of women that, like who, who classed themselves as BBWs, and they were saying, you know, nobody ever speaks about this, but we, you know, like to get people to pay for the same money for the stuff that they desire is is difficult. So there's this kind of idea that authenticity is equally uh, sort, of, sort of compensated, is equally recompensed. You know, and I think sometimes we 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 miss that in academia. We see authenticity because we see the inclusion of ever of more and more bodies into the workplace that wouldn't have been excluded before.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so I do want to say like there were, you know, old school studios that specialized in BBW productions. Um, So I don't think that that's like entirely new. Um, But, but yeah, absolutely. Um, The market has, has exploded in, in new directions, but I I still think that that is a, a dialectical process, right. Where like, where platforms have found new areas of the market to colonize, but also that's only because workers have muscled their way in um, and, you know, again, developed markets where even those platforms had never imagined a market might exist. Um, so, so I think that, that that, dynamic is really messy and complicated.
1: Do you think it's a case of muscling in though or a kind of a, a sort of like a, a sort of like an awareness a response to to um to a kind of knowledge that you've got something that people inherently desire i i remember interviewing this woman and she was in trinidad and she was she was of south asian origin she was quite large and she was like i'm 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 you know i'm a sort of, i'm a niche on my own and it's like i really really enjoy that I really enjoy it, and it's like she said. But I, I but I felt like that already, you know. And it was kind of like. So I think the kind of authenticity is about people recognizing before they get on camera that that they've got something that other people want to purchase, and then they kind of expand on it from there, you know. Because I, I think sort of like sometimes I, I don't think we, and again, a thing that we don't always talk about is that is the positive affirmation that people get from porn, from webcoming, and, you know, that appreciation, that, that sort of, you know, audience appreciation, that's,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. That's real. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, I think you know, something I'm concerned about um, in, in sex worker activism more broadly right now, and I think you can see it reflected in scholarship and that I try to disrupt some of that in, in the book, um, is is this this solidifying of of two new camps and in, in you know not in our own kind of mini sex war, which is you know this idea that there are some people who talk about labor and there are some t- people who talk about pleasure. There are some people who talk about money and others about these kind of psychic affirmations. Um, and I want to to think about the pleasure and the psychic affirmations um, you know as material too. They are they are things that that give workers something. And thus, you know, even if you're someone who nominally is focused on questions of political economy and class, you should absolutely care about that. Um, Also, of course, you know, in a in sexual economies under capitalism, um, you know, what feels affirming to us often feels, you know, the affirmation feels like security. It feels like like being wanted means that you'll be okay. And I don't think that any of those things can be parsed out so that the sense of of having power in your, you know, erotic capital, if you will. Um, Yeah. Like that, that matters um, on a, on a a basic level in terms of these, you know, ego questions, but also like that it's about this, or if I think for a lot of people um, can, can also kind of map onto the sense that particularly for people socialized as women, that like, if you're desired that you'll have a little bit more security in this world. Yeah.
1: But also, as well, I think there's almost a kind of argument for a dealienation of the alienation of your labour, like because if you enjoy it, you've got just got paid twice, basically, didn't you? You know, and you, yeah. So, oh, I have to ask you about this because this is the first time I encountered your work, and I encountered your work when you wrote that article. A scene is just a marketing a marketing tool. It's the name of the um, uh, of a chapter as well. So, can you can you tell us about that? Can you tell us about that? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, and this is another area where I think, you know, if we just look at at the advertisements, at, um, at products as they exist out in the world and don't talk to working people, you can make assumptions about what scenes mean for people. Um, and you would, one might assume that because in you know that that kind of pyramid that goes, always you know travels around online of the hierarchy that porn is at the top that that porn scenes would be the kind of um, ultimate goal of sex workers or the you know the best kind of sex work or the thing that you would aspire to do once you were doing it you would do it predominantly or exclusively um, and it's just not true so 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 many performers. Um, use scenes really strategically simply as a way to market their other hustles, whether that be um, escort work or a tour um, as an erotic dancer or um, work as a webcam model. Um, you know, their direct direct-to-consumer scenes, um, a flashlight, whatever. Um, and I think that, that that matters for a couple reasons. Again, I mean, that... That piece that you originally read um, was was included in porn studies, and it was you know partly an invitation to porn study scholars to to decenter the porn scene as the primary object, object of inquiry. Um, if we're going to actually talk about labor, um, that that most porn work doesn't take place on set, um, and that porn workers want it that way. And then I think from the labor studies perspective, why this matters. Um, is because it, it does shift the dynamics around what we think um, the scene means as a site of exploitation, because it is something that that traditional directors and studios or you know, platforms make money off of your labor. But if you're using that thing, not primarily as an income generating space for yourself, but rather as a way to market other hustles, then it's not necessarily someone making money off your time in in a top down again uh, kind of tidy way. It's much messier than that, and I'm, I'm really interested in that dynamic. And the last thing I'll say about that is just that that directors and platforms know that that's the case more so than again than academics often understand this. And directors, you know, I quote some in the book who are pissed off about this. Like they know they're being used by the very performers that they thought that they would be successfully using. And I think that that's just yeah, that's like a beautiful good. turn.
1: And do you know why it really, like why, I can remember reading this and I was, I actually had this sort of part-time job. I was I was answering the phones for a friend of mine who ran a dungeon, okay, and she'd made all this footage and we were going through the footage of like some really quite extraordinary things because she wanted to make a folder, you know, like a folder of clips that she could sell. And I was writing an, an essay at the time and I was quoting you in this essay and I had to show her the article because I was like, look, that's exactly what you're doing. That's scene that you're now just chopping up into, into, into clips. That's exactly what you're doing. You know, and she did. She made far more money out of the clips that she, you know, the, the, the frames that she turned into to, to, um, clips for sale, I think it was she put Interesting. One. She did out of the scene.
0: Right. Right. And then so it's so what's I mean that, that's that's great, and yeah, she's using this hustle. But then it's also so interesting to me that that then anti porn feminists who nominally want to to reduce the power of, you know, male porn managers, right? Like these boogeymen, um, actually miss the areas in which sex workers are already doing that. Right. And so so they, they almost need porn workers to remain in a subordinate position so that they have an object that they can, they can fit into these narratives. Um, but there's no space in those narratives, right, for someone showing up on set um, purely to, uh, you know, in some ways, like, manipulate the dynamic to their benefit. Like, where would you fit that into that analysis? It can't exist. And so in some ways, I think those anti-porn feminist thinkers um you know would prefer that those forms of struggle aren't taking place and that to me feels extremely violent um as as a kind of hope
1: yeah exactly but also as well if you, if people are already doing that for themselves well then you are now redundant yeah so it's like exactly. you home, you really, you're not you're right. not needed exactly. and from a personal point of view right about the time you, you need the middle classes to come and rescue you you're really right. in trouble yeah exactly <laughs> So can you tell us how the actors you spoke to put boundaries between life and work?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I'll say first that not everyone wanted to. Um, and I think that's something again, that, that some, um, scholarship, particularly around freelance gig and creative work sometimes misses. There's this assumption that all workers find the blurred boundaries between life and work to be, you know, a uniquely draining condition. Um, I think it's really interesting that that assumption comes from academics who are, you know, we're both in like zooming in from bedrooms. Right now. <laughs> like, so, so I think, you know, I read this, these accounts and I think, well, you've also chosen a career that blurs those boundaries and you've chosen it because that gives you something. So I just want to say, um, you know, that the, that, that, boundary isn't necessarily desirable for people. Um, but um, of course, you know, as, as, as folks in academia know as well, um, the, you know, pursuing work that doesn't have those clear lines can be less alienating, but it can also mean that you never clock out. Um, and, and, yeah, and poor work, porn workers navigate that in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, some folks um, have strict, keeps really strict hours. Some folks um, mark the distinction not in terms of hours or spaces, but in terms of personas. Um and some folks, you know, work all they possibly can during a period of a few weeks and then take time off. Um, they also think about crafty ways to, uh, particularly in digital economies to automate the process so that it looks like they're working all the time, but that that's not the case. Um, but you know, that's, a, it's, Oh, it's a struggle and it's really hard. I think, you know, in, in terms of the research you've been doing around webcam work, um, there is absolutely an expectation that, as you know, <laughs> this is for the listeners, um, that that in order to, um, to kind of climb the, the algorithmic hierarchy, that you have to be working all of the time. Um, and I think that's a, a double bind that a lot of sex workers can identify with, that you, you, know, you pursue the work to have more freedom over your
1: time, and also
0: it takes up your whole life.
1: But you know what, that, that, the thing about the algorithms isn't necessarily true. I interviewed a performer who who was doing a PhD in algorithms, who was also a performer, and she was like, "That's not, you know, certain perform certain platforms that you can just log on. It's about it's about the speed of your of your um, of your internet, because it's no good if you're on there twenty four seven, but they can't take your clips, they can't use your stream to divert traffic. It's not about how often you're there; it's how good your equipment is, and other places you just pay to to." To feature more strongly, you know. So even that, the the academia, the academic assumption of victimization of certain types of people is totally kind of like skewed. Um, right, we're almost we're almost there. You talk interestingly about sex, work, and the state in the book. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, there are a few places I could go with that. Um, I, th- I think I'll start with with the central tension of of that piece, um, which is that in ways that look quite strange um, for, from per- perspectives of, of folks who organize around straight work, um, that porn workers often ally with managers, again, you know, human and algorithmic and platform um, against state intervention. In, um in ways, again, you know, particularly around regulations, around occupational health, um, and things like that, um, that we just wouldn't expect in, um, in other workforces where workers are often asking the state to come in and intervene. Um, and I think the, the kind of conventional academic understanding of that is that sex workers skew libertarian, and sometimes that's true. But, um, but what I found is instead that there's this, this really deep and sustained critique of the state that's not coming from a libertarian perspective, Um, But that's coming from hard-earned historical memory of state violence um, and an understanding that on the one hand, state protection um, around sex work has, um, you know, overwhelmingly treated sex workers as vectors of disease um, and unruly bodies to be contained rather than workers who need protection. But on the other, a lot of sex workers, because again, they're refusing and fleeing from straight jobs know very well that state protection, even in recognized and respectable work, is limp. You know, that <laughs> in the UK, you've got these zero hours contracts and that gets raised yeah, against people all the time. Um, but, you know, certainly in the US context, this idea that that um, and again, I think a lot of academics have this idea because they uh, have access if they have, you know, a, a salaried position um, to slightly more protections. But um, this idea that if you are a, a recognized employee, um, that the state will protect you when your boss is abusive or puts you in harm's way, you know most working class people know that that's not the case. Um, and one thing that I'm, I'm always tickled by is um, is academics will read portions of of this chapter in particular, and um, you know and, and sections on on. Uh, employers say not paying for workers comp when somebody gets injured and they'll say, isn't that illegal? And I think, you know, I think half the academics I know have stress related illnesses have worn their teeth into a nub. You know, it's not, their universities aren't paying for that. So, you know, the letter of the law matters almost not at all when none of this is enforced. And when most working class people can't afford to sue, and these systems aren't actually set up to, to serve workers, so that's true for all workers. But I think you know, of course, sex workers and, and porn workers in particular know very well that the state, you know, does, is not there to support their their labor rights claims.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's really funny as well because I was thinking about Augusta Laura Augusta when you said that she talks about the helping gays, like the helping gays of academics, probably should be like turned around and she goes down and see actually who needs the help here you know and yeah yeah so in your conclusion you say that the narrative of porn as an escape from work operates on multiple registers
0: what does that mean (laughs) well um you know on the one hand it is it's more than a narrative right it's a reality it is a thing again you know it is a, a a kind of work that lets people escape other and often worse work um and that is real and it matters and you know and i think we've touched on that a lot in this conversation um that that, that refusal matters um i think it it changes individual lives um it keeps some communities alive but it also reduces workforces for other kinds of businesses, in some ways, and I think you know that's there's lots of, of feminist historians who write about um, the ways that sex work criminalization maps onto labor shortage. Um, and I'm interested in what that looks like right now. You know, I, I don't know if you've been following that in the U.S. There's all sorts of concern around fast food uh, employers not being able to hire workers. No one will work for them, and um, and I think. You know, it's part of it's it's not obviously I'm not not all of those workers have turned to OnlyFans, but um but there there is I think a dynamic in which um in which workers sometimes choose to hustle instead of clocking in. Um and that that can be a real flight, um if not a total escape. But the other side of that is that that as in other creative and freelance jobs, um, the idea and certainly in, in much care work and feminized labors, um, the idea that your work isn't work but is a vocation um, or fun self-expression, you know, can, can make us profoundly exploitable. And there I'll, I'll continue in our tradition today of, of talking about the academy, right? Like we, we <laughs> self-exploit all the time on those conditions. And so, so I think um, we have to just take both of those realities seriously.
1: I think as well, like, it was really interesting what you were saying because I, I was just thinking about, you know, the sort of, like, the, the 1860s, the introduction of the um, the kind of uh, Contagious Diseases Act. What's happening? We've got loads of factories springing up that need to be staffed. Last thing you want to do is loads of, like, independent women wandering around doing blowjobs for the price that they do earn for a week in a Absolutely. factory.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, to your point about... about the helping gaze. I mean, so much of the story of, of, of middle and upper middle class, you know, white feminist helping um, has been, I think, connected to those those feminists' um, rage at the reality that that's you know some sex workers would rather give their husband a blow job, then clean their kitchen, you know, and that, um, you know, that brings us back to the cleaners debate of last summer, of course. Um, but, uh, but I, I, do think that's, that's a not insignificant part of that story. And part of the, the sense that, um, you know, I, I don't think that those, those self-identified helpers are trying to shut down sex industries to staff their kitchens more easily. But I do think that there is this sense that, that some forms of service work are good work and that, that, the people who hire out those kinds of labors um, are in a pure ethical position. um, Whereas people who hire sex workers aren't, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, of, um, of class opportunism that's wrapped up in that.
1: Yes. So who did you write the book for apart from me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great question, Rachel, because um, you know, that's something that came up in reviews and, um, and in, um, you know, and, and as I was writing, I was writing for sex workers, um, not, not thinking that I was saying anything that they didn't already know. Um, but, but you know, so much of why I write in the first place is just a love letter to sex worker ingenuity and creativity. Um, and that's, that's certainly the community, not suggesting that it's a, you know, a coherent or unified community, but the, those are the readers that I I care most about, you know, and when I hear from from current and former sex workers that, that they feel seen in the text, I mean, God, like there's nothing better, right? That's 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 who I wrote for. In that case, um, you know, I, I would also like to get tenure. <laughs> so, and I, I, you know, if, if there's a, some small way um, that that this can can shift conversations, um, you know, away from these frames of workers' reactivity. Um, away from reifying frames, um, and away from, from liberal ones that assume that, that, that you know, even if, if there's an idea that, that capitalism is exploitation, that it will always exist, if I can push us away from that at all, then I'm writing for, for scholarly audiences that are willing to move in that direction. Um, and also, you know, with, with and alongside the, the thinkers, both within and outside the academy, who are already having those conversations. Um, and then, you know, finally, I'm getting some emails from, from porn fans, um, who, um, this is not an invitation. Please do not continue to send me lots of emails, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> who, you know, who say they're learning something, um, about how they might engage working people. And, um, that's certainly not what I had in mind, but, um, but I, am. Um, I'm happy to I've hear, heard from a couple of people who' have said that they've they've stopped pestering their favorite stars for for proof of of their authentic enjoyment. So that makes me feel good. Um, but yeah, <laughs> at the end of the day, um, I, I wrote this, if not for sex working readers again, because these are conversations, of course, that we we have in in break rooms and, and backstage and um, and organizing meetings all the time. So I don't think I'm offering any new takes. Um, you know that folks don't already have access to, but if I can create a kind of archive for, for the really smart thinking that's already happening, then then I'm happy.
1: Don't get tenured. The precarious miss you is warm down. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so what did you learn from writing, and what have you got lined up next?
0: Hmm. Um, what did I learn? I mean, God, I've learned so much. I. I, you know, and this, this is hard to parse out what I learned from the the research process and just from, you know, versus being in community with people over the years, you know, including um, before I went to graduate school or started this project. But, um, but I, I, you know, I really don't think it's an overstatement to say that, that all of the best things that I know about political economy, about the politics of refusal, about what we should do with the state. I mean, all of that comes from sex workers. Um, I just, I just think sex working people are, are are so smart and um and creative and crafty and yeah everything i think about politics um everything i think about the kinds of worlds that we should build and also how to survive in this one until we do um comes from sex workers struggles and their knowledge production um so i learned a lot (laughs) um in that and and you know i i i didn't start out you know it's Out even from the perspective of sex worker organizing, but still there are so many things that got destabilized for me along the way. Um, you know, perhaps especially this sense, um, that we're not just talking about work here. Like there's, there's something else going on. Um, and in terms of what's coming next, I mean, that flows really directly. Um, so I'm working now on a, a project, which will, you know, hopefully become another book. Um, that's right now, I'm, I'm calling it an intellectual history of the sex worker left um, and did a bunch of interviews with um, anti-capitalist identified sex workers and um, just thinking about their knowledge production in a, in a much more direct way. So whereas the porn workbook is a labor ethnography that's certainly trying to highlight um, porn workers and thinking about their own conditions, um, I've become kind of more and more uncomfortable with the ethnographic gaze even from a feminist perspective um and just what it means to um even even the people were so generous with their time and inviting me into their spaces but i don't know that i could again um insinuate myself into people's workspaces um and i you know i think and and just kind of i'm, I'm less and less interested in and I think I have a little more freedom here now that I've you know, got a job, I've done the PhD, I've passed some of those, those hoops. Um, I'm less and less interested in, in asking people about their conditions and then, and then thinking from an academic perspective about what that might mean um, and more and more interested in what I've done in these, this most recent round of interviews and asking people directly, like, you know, what do you think about the nature of unpaid sexuality? <laughs> Um, like talk to me about what sex work has taught you about, about the theory of the state. Um, talk to me about how you came to your politics, those kinds of questions. Um, so, so that's where I, where I'm going next. Um, and yeah, now the semester's over. So I've got some time to sit with these interviews and, and just, just soak up all these, all these really brilliant ideas.
1: And that's really important to get away from that sort of fetishization of the sex working part of sex workers' lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You
0: know. So so yeah, exactly. I'm no part of this. I didn't ask any questions about like the conditions of sex work because I actually think in some ways that that research feels pretty oversaturated. I realize I've, you know, contributed to that in a very obvious way <laughs> with this book, but um but I think uh I'm yeah, I, I don't I don't know that that civilians need more information about sex work at this point.
1: No. Um, no. Yeah. they fetishized enough. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Enough. Your porn. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> So anyway, this was um this was another production for the new book network sex sexualities and sex work channel. I was speaking to Heather Berg about an awesome book, Porn Work. Stop what you're doing now, people, and just go buy the book. Just put it down, whatever it is you're doing. Go buy this book. And my name is Rachel Stewart, and I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent.